You're listening to the Slavic Literature Pod, your shelf-help guide to all things Slavic. I'm Matt Karasimovich, PhD candidate at Northwestern University, studying Russian literature and film. And I'm Cameron Lalana, a literature enthusiast and guy working in media. We're two friends who met studying in Russia, and we like talking about books so much that we made it into a podcast. And speaking of the podcast, this is the podcast for people who are trying to learn more about Slavic literature, art, and culture. Every episode, we're going to be bringing you the background and analysis you'll need to know to understand these works. If you're interested in supporting us, you can head on over to our website, slaviclitpod.com. That's also where you can sign up for our email list, where we'll be sending you daily emails about uh, the book that we are covering today, which speaking of, what are we covering today, Matt? If you want, we don't have to email you daily, but if you want, we could. It's not forced. It's not a forced daily email. Unless you want, in in which case you could. We're not the Soviet state. We're not here to tell you that you're going to get the email in your inbox. (laughs) Speaking of the Soviet state, this week we are delving into chapters 1 through 31 of Life and Fate by Vasily Grossman. Uh, This is part of an extensive, overcommitted, and quite frankly, ridiculously... Uh, ridiculous amount of work uh, series for us that we're doing on Grossman's Life and Fate. Uh, if, if you're not aware, we're also doing daily episodes going chapter by chapter where we're talking about some of the finer points of the writing and talking about the discussion that we're getting on Instagram and in our Discord. So if you're interested in that, more info down in the description. And pretty soon, if you're looking for these daily episodes, they're going to be archived on their very own dedicated RSS feed, meaning that you're not going to be able to find them on our main podcast feed. So when that happens, a link to that will be in the description as well. Absolutely. So you can keep an eye out for that in our episodes and as well as those daily episodes in the feed itself. Yeah, we realize we're kind of inadvertently clogging our whole podcast feed with the daily episodes, but we still want to do them because we started. Well, hey, here we are. Here we are dealing with things with unintended consequences, much like much of the many of the topics that we'll be covering in the book. Yes, dealing with the unintended consequences of me saying, hey, Cameron, what if, and Cameron never saying no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we reap what we sow. Uh, I usually think, I well, almost always think that you've got good ideas, so it's really the same That's brain the style. Yeah. That is the problem. That is the problem, bouncing around here. <laughs> anyway, so we're talking about Vasily Grossman's Life and Fate. Uh, you may have been here for our Stalingrad series, or one of two times that we've run his... his uh, our episode on his short story, the the Sistine Madonna, but now we are moving forward into actually the real Battle of Stalingrad. Unlike the book Stalingrad, which is kind of the run up <laughs> to the Battle of Stalingrad. <laughs> Although you know by this point uh, the the battle is basically lost for the the USSR. So let me set you a scene here. Let's talk about Vasily Grossman himself. Please paint me a picture. Some of you may be coming here from our Stalingrad series. Some of you may be coming only from our daily episodes. Some of you may be coming from both. Some of you may be coming from neither. So here's a quick rundown on Vasily Grossman, very brief on his early life, but mostly talking about what leads us to this novel. So Vasily Grossman is born into the town of Berdichev, into a Jewish family in the very late Russian Empire. He's born in 1905, and he's born into what's known as the Pale of Settlement. And until the end of the Russian Empire, I think it stops being enforced in 1915, but it's still in the books. And obviously, once the Russian Empire falls, this falls away entirely. Uh, He lives in this area called the Pale of Settlement, which encompasses several modern-day nations, which is the only area officially where Jewish people can, can live permanently or temporarily. You're bogged down in documentation, and it's possible, but very difficult to leave. This is something that's put in place under Catherine the Great and, you know, maintains for, you know, about 200 or so years. Grossman's family, however, was fairly wealthy, so he was actually able to leave this. He does leave as a teenager when he's 14 to go to, I believe it's Switzerland, with his mother, who raises him. Most of his childhood is being raised by his mother before being brought back to uh, Ukraine, living in Kiev, at which point, as a teenager, he lives through the, the... First, the revolution that happens in 1917, and then the ensuing years of civil war. Through that, he eventually goes on to go to college, studies chemical engineering, uh, comes back to Ukraine, works in factories doing chemical testing. Not super great for his health. Uh, His father, who had left him as a child, but he still maintained a sort of relationship with 
is able to get him out and is able to get him into a different environment. That's where he begins to publish some of the writing he's been working with so far. And he goes on to write some early novels. Uh, the first one is Gluchauf, which is talking about German miners. Uh, he goes on to write Saponical Trugen. And, and he's drawing a lot of influence from his time as a, as a chemical engineer, which does become more interesting, especially as he goes to his later years and becomes a little bit less inhibited in some of the things that he saw during those years, including some effects of the of collectivization, which is you know known now as the Holomador, the, the hunger which led to the deaths of uh, some number of millions of people as a, a result of failure of collective collectivization policies. Uh, from there, he goes on to become a writer of some success, and then war breaks out, at which point he becomes a war writer, he becomes a journalist, and he goes to the front lines to report what he sees there. Now, that's going to fundamentally set up really what carries out the rest of his life in terms of his writing, for the most part. He writes three novels, ultimately, about the war. The first is The People Immortal, written mid-war. The second is Stalingrad, which is started during the war but finished after the war. And then finally, started after the war and finished way after, is Life and Fate. So Stalingrad is finished in the late 1940s, and getting it published is a challenge. So what happens is, in the 1950s, he's able to get it published in installations in a magazine. Now, that is with some edits. His editors uh, don't like some of the themes, don't like some of the things he's portrayed, and especially they don't like the obvious Jewishness of the novel, the, well, the Jewishness of some characters, rather. At this point in time, the official line of the, of the USSR, which is going to become relevant in our discussion here, is uh, the phrase, do not divide the dead. Basically, the idea is, in World War II, everyone suffered greatly, which is a true statement. However, that then becomes a cudgel against certain groups who may have suffered more. Obvious example, uh, Soviet Jews, who Vasily Grossman was a part of a number of uh, Jewish journalists who did a lot of work to document crimes against Soviet Jews. Vasily Grossman was greatly impacted by the war. His own mother was killed by the Nazis who still lived in Berdichev as in, after being imprisoned in a ghetto, and also all the work he did on a book which would not be published in Russian in the USSR, it would only be published outside much later, called The Black Book, uh, which is a compilation of, of the work of Jewish journalists about Nazi crimes against uh, Soviet Jews, whereas, you know, more or less, not suppressed, but, I mean, in a sense, it was never brought to the public's attention. Uh, this very personal connection he had to a very outsized uh, suffering was not officially acknowledged by the Soviet state at the time. So that became a problem, but he fights through a lot of that and manages to publish Stalingrad in a modified form in that, that run in, 19, in the 1950s to 1951. Now, when that finishes, um, initially it's received very well. He, during the war, is a well-loved writer. He's perhaps one of the most popular writers of the war, and it's received as such. However, uh, it's not loved at the highest levels, and that leads to a period of denunciations from... Uh, 1951 to from 19 from the from the end of the publication run until Stalin's death, but Grossman was then hounded by a wave of denunciations. The basic idea is that at some level towards the top, we can obviously not say exactly where this came from, but the idea is generally toward drawn towards, you know, Stalin may have read this, may not have liked it, and then that filters down into, well, this is revisionism. How can this man say that he is representing what happened in Stalingrad? You know, who is he? Just a guy who was there <laughs> writing about it when it was happening? Um, what, were you there experiencing it? <laughs> Come <right>. on. <laughs> um, and that leads to a wave of people backing away. Many of his friends stop talking to him. His editors denounce his work. His, uh, the publication company that puts it out wants their advance back. Things are not going great for Vasily Grossman. This is also during a time of rising anti-Semitism in the USSR, um, which is largely but not solely, you know, attributed to Stalin. We'll talk about this more in the episode, but this is the era of the so-called uh, doctor's plot in which it is alleged that a group of Jewish doctors have tried to kill Stalin. This is a really important thing for Grossman, who at one point is brought into a meeting under false pretenses and is then forced to sign a letter condemning these doctors. Um, and he's also being noticed more and more. He's being more and more uh, ostracized from public life at this point in time, um, which stops... Not all at once, but Stalin dies in early 1953. He dies in March of 1953, and in the months after, there are shifts at the highest level of the Soviet government, which then start to change things, right? Um, a month after Stalin's death, the Kremlin publishes an article in the new, one of the main state newspapers, Pravda, which basically says, the doctor's plot was 
overblown. The evidence had for it was extracted using illegal methods, i.e. torture, and this was not something that was, in effect, something that is stood by, stand, stood by now legally. At the same time that's happening, right, you've got the highest level of, of, the, of the Soviet Communist Party um, who are now jostling for power. One of the most key figures of this is Lavrenti Beria, who's the head of the secret police, who is at the head of the services at the organs which were producing the evidence for the doctor's plot for other major um, murders, assassinations of this time, who very quickly moves to change things. He issues a broad uh, amnesty to about a million people in the Soviet gulag system, uh, not including political prisoners, notably. Uh, he ends a number of use he ends forced labor in in some cases in logging and industry and some other things by moving uh, that by moving ministries around and he also ends some massive forced labor projects that were going nowhere now that wasn't done in the kindness of his heart that was as read by other members of Soviet leadership at this time read as him positioning himself to be the successor so a figure that we've talked about quite a lot Khrushchev and several of his allies ultimately have Beria arrested and uh, later put him on trial, and he's executed through that. What this means for Grossman is not an immediate turnaround, but the pressures that people have been putting on him throughout this period, through 1951 through 1953, start to be alleviated. People who were previously denouncing him, even if they were his friends, although maybe not coming back to give him a call saying, hey, Grossman, hi, well, I don't think they call him Grossman, they probably said, hey, hey, Vasily, hey, Vasya, how are you doing? Uh, now they're just ignoring him. And there are even a few who come crawling back. And in you know, 1953, 1954, he actually even gets a version of Stalingrad published again with even some parts of it restored that were not done in the original run. In this same time period, starting in 1952, that's when Grossman starts writing Life and Fate as a follow-up to Stalingrad. But throughout this period, he becomes less and less optimistic that it's going to be published, especially by the time he's in 1953, right? I mean, he's... We use this phrase sometimes, writing for the drawer. And the thing is that Grossman was not optimistic about it being published, but Grossman was certainly not intending to write for the drawer. He was always intending to write for publication, as far as we can tell. Certainly, there were, I'm sure there were moments of doubt, and I'm sure that there are sections and pages and maybe even chapters and whole parts of the book which may have been written with that doubt. But the evidence that we have, the documentary evidence that we have, is that he really wanted this book to come out. He's almost done writing Life and Fate by 1954, and it is a continuation of Stalingrad as we understand, but it is in a new context. So Stalingrad is being written in the context of his experiences in the war, but Life and Fate is being written in a slightly new context. After the war, Grossman moves into a, a writer's village outside of Moscow called uh, Begovaya, uh, Begovaya Village, and that's where a number of writers and composers uh, are given apartments as sort of like this nice little uh, space for creatives. A year after he moves there, this is a, 1947 is when he moves there, 1948 is when this happens, an interesting figure returns. Nikolai Zabolotsky is a very important poet for this time period, and he's returned in 1948, which is very unusual. He's not rehabilitated, not yet, but he is returned, and he's returned to Moscow, and he's given an apartment there, which is very unusual, and I that just doesn't happen, really, especially not in this time period. Most returns, at least most returnees who come back to major cities, that happens in the 1950s, about seven years later. But he moves into the same area that Grossman lives in, and because of the nature of him being a relatively influential poet or person, and Grossman and him strike up a friendship, and it is through him that he learns about much of the ins and outs of the gulag, of course, their conversations are not themselves written down, but we do have an idea of what Grossman learned because uh, Zabolotsky would go on to publish a memoir of, his, uh, of the events he went through. And based on a biography written by Zabolotsky's son, Nikita, uh, who recollects Grossman's conversations with Zabolotsky, it, you know, Grossman approached these conversations as a journalist. He was approaching it to get the full story from Zabolotsky's arrest in 1937 to his time in the so-called Big House in Leningrad. Um, where he was uh, interrogated by the KGB. Big House, which, by the way, is still there. I, I think Matt and I went by that when we were living in Petersburg. Yeah, we didn't, we didn't go in, but... We tried, but surprisingly, they don't, aren't real big on tourists going in for some reason. Yeah, I think you have to be uh, invited in. Right. So to speak. So to speak. And so that begins to affect his work. And by the time he is in 1955, 
uh, which like this work is going beyond the initial period it, it would have been planned to go on, or at least he thought it would go on. He writes a, a letter to a friend of his, Samuel Nipkin, and says his work is taking him in a new direction. In 1955 and 1966, this is a really interesting set of years for Grossman, interesting in a number of senses. 1955 and 1966, this is now a couple years after Stalin's death, and more returnees are starting to come to Moscow, and they're trying to have their cases expunged. Uh, you know, Even though they have been returned from the gulag, they're still under that legal threat, still under that suspicion, and it is only by getting their case expunged that they can get a lot of uh, bureaucracy to go their way, or at least to be less against them, as we will see in some of the things we will talk about today or have talked about in our other podcasts. And it is in that era that Grossman begins to meet more of these people and begins to interview a lot more of them. This is also a period of interesting personal struggles for Grossman. In 1956, he leaves his wife, Olga, of about 20 years, for Nikolai Zabolotsky's wife, Yekaterina Zabolotskaya, and they spend the next two years living together. Uh, by all accounts, this was a great period of great happiness for Grossman, who he had shared his life with Olga for over 20 years, and they had struggles. Uh, Grossman blamed Olga for the death of his mother. You'll see that reflected more or less exactly how, <laughs> maybe those feelings exactly in uh, life and fate itself, that same struggle. And this was a very happy period for the two of them, although quite guilty. And it's that guilt that would eventually drive them apart about two years later when Zabolotsky, who is not doing great mentally at this point, is basically on the verge of death because of the alcoholism he's developed. And uh, Zabolotskaya, Katerina, leaves Grossman to go back to him. And, and Grossman goes back to Olga, his wife, although she never forgives him for, you know, up and leaving her after 20 years. Um, Hard to see why. <laughs> right, for sure. Um, and, you know, he keeps, and he's also doing a number of other things in these years, but just to cut it short, because we're going on kind of, a, kind of long, and we will have many more episodes to talk about the particulars of this period. For another couple of years, with the ways he's rewriting it, it continues, his work on it continues until 1960, is when he has it typed up, it makes a few more revisions and decides, all right, I'm going to have this published. And this is against the advice of pretty much all of his friends. His friend Samuel Lipkin, who I mentioned, tells him, you know, you should, do not do not have this published. This is not going to get published. You know, I've gone through here are all these things that could get you arrested even now, even today. And in one of these conversations, reportedly, he has an outburst at Lipkin and he tells him, I'm not a coward like you. I will not be writing for my desk drawer. So going back to this idea of writing for the desk drawer, I'm sure there are moments of doubts. But ultimately, it seems that Grossman really was a writer of his time, really was a writer of a system. And Matt has mentioned previously, he thinks it's wrong to categorize Grossman as a dissident writer. And I think in one way that you can see it here in that he is writing not to say, I need my writing out in the world for the world to see what my state is like. He is writing for the Soviet Union itself. He doesn't try to smuggle his work outside like Boris Pasternak, who, by the way, uh, at the same time period, he does get his work smuggled, Dr. Zhivago smuggled that and published abroad. Obviously, that had repercussions for him, and that could very well have influenced that decision, but you could also read that as the audience Grossman is writing for. So, yeah, he could have, I mean, he could have done it. I, like, it was hard to do, but it wasn't that hard. For sure, yeah. Like, people people did it. If you were sort of connected enough, it was a possibility. Yeah, and, uh, you know, going back to Pasternak, it had just happened, so... So he submits it, and it does not go well for him because they report it to the Central Committee, and the Central Committee says, you, you must denounce this, which they do. And then the KGB shows up at Grossman's door. They are there for an arrest, but they are not there to arrest Vasily Grossman. They are there to arrest his book. They walk in, they search his study, and then they take him, not to prison, but to other places in which he'd taken his novel to the typist, to the print shop, whatever, and they confiscate all other materials related to it, and then they return Grossman to his home. The novel is arrested, but not destroyed. It's kept. All his notes are kept, and they'll be later released in, I think, the 1990s, maybe the early 90s, um, but his work is arrested. However, Grossman has considered that possibility and has given a copy of it to his friend, Samuel Lipkin, but he is also, unknown to Lipkin, given a second copy of it, to a school friend of his who is completely unconnected to the writer scene otherwise. So there are two copies which will float out there, and eventually it's that latter copy which will be, after Grossman's death, uh, brought out of the Soviet Union and published abroad. Grossman himself never really recovers from this. This happens in 1961, although he does have some other major things to talk about. Really, within his health begins to fail quite rapidly, and within the next three years, by 1964, he's been diagnosed with cancer. 
And on the evening of September 14th, 1964, he passes away, not knowing the fate of his novel. And that's Grossman's story. In short, there's a lot more to talk about, but we're getting a little long in this overall. Um, and that's, that's how Life and Fate came to be, eventually. It would be published abroad in the 1980s later, and it would, would be published in the USSR in 1988, although quite redacted. Um, so this novel, I think we have to think of it slightly differently than other novels, like, say, for example, Mikhail Bulgakov's uh, Master and Margarita, which was clearly never going to be published, right? Even less so. I mean, Bulgakov was, um, as you've talked about previously, you know, in a bit of a protected position in the Soviet Union, but even still, Grossman was throwing his novel at people to get them to publish it, <laughs> Life and Fate, which considering yeah. if you've read this far with us, you'll know why that's so wild. <laughs> yes, although it, it it is wild, but I mean, I don't know. Kind of, kind of looking back at a lot of the things that he did publish that were really well received, it, maybe there could be a glimmer there. For sure, for sure. And well, yeah, there's also more politics talk about the publishing magazines at this time. Interestingly, he submits it to a to a conservative magazine uh, under the partially because the liberal magazine led by an editor Tvardovsky who helped him publish uh, Stalingrad were like the first ones to denounce him. Whereas the conservative magazines had on occasion published some more controversial short stories and even defended it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of politics and publishing and, and all of this. It's a lot more complex than just, you know, government bad, government doesn't like, and so on and so forth. And that's kind of how we've been conditioned to think about the Soviet Union and the publishing process there. But it is still quite complex. So... Normally, we would go ahead and do a uh, an overview of what's happened in chapters 1 through 31. However, because we've been doing daily episodes on that, we think that's a bit redundant. So if you would like a chapter-by-chapter analysis of this work, go to our daily episodes, which you're, if you're listening to this in real time, they'll still be in our main feed. And if they are, if you are listening to this in the future, go to our the show notes and you'll find a link to the secondary feed where those will all be archived in perpetuity. But today, what we're going to be doing instead is talking about a couple key strands that we're going to start to follow throughout this novel. And Matt, why don't I throw it over to you? I've been talking for long enough. What are what are some of the key threads we should start following? Well, there are a lot of threads that we are sort of knitting together to build ourselves this Grossman quilt, if you will. Mm. And these are things that we have sort of uh, talked about on the individual episodes, but I kind of wanted to reiterate some of them as we go through them and kind of tie them together in this sort of main narrative and this first episode is hard because we are introduced to most of if not all of the characters or the main characters that we're going to be touching upon so we have i I don't know five four or five at least sort of main storyline threads um we have camps we have frontline we have uh, sort of the the home front and there's sort of some subdivision variation between all of those um i think I, I wanted to just first sort of mention and if you'll indulge me i think you will because i think this is an area that that you like yes uh in the in the military history uh, of it all um because i feel like in order to really understand the the sort of the sort of stakes of it all. I, I really feel like it's important to reiterate just just how close this was to all being uh, over and going the other way. Mm. I was reading part of an article that uh, sort sort of it, it, I wouldn't refer you to the article for this particular information because it was sort of mentioned in passing. But uh, as I was doing some research, came across this sort of description of how the city was sort of set up as the battle was going on, which was that more or less the Nazis had captured everything except for a few individual houses that were set up on key junctures. And the Soviets were essentially able to uh, sort of funnel the Nazis into particular predictable streets and particular times and patterns and they were able to hold down an entire city just by occupying 10% or less of the total uh, area in, in the city. And, you know, ultimately this is, you know, spoiler alert on how, how it ends. It um, causes the Nazis to miscalculate and think that the forces there are, 
are so, are so great and vast that you know there possibly could never be any sort of counteroffensive. And this is a a great sort of a great story of of triumph in in this case. And so Grossman has uh, something that he publishes that is like you mentioned. There's many things he's publishing at this time being on the front that people are really enamored about. I mean, I I couldn't imagine having a journalist today that has the sort of literary finesse of, of Grossman. I mean, it would be phenomenal. Um, they wouldn't have anything to write about, really, I guess, um, in in the U.S. probably. Like, I don't know. I feel like they'd be, they'd be just more writing like clickbait articles, so it's kind of misses the point. That, um, the real tragedy of our own era is that our Grossman is working... I was going to say working for BuzzFeed, but actually BuzzFeed had a pretty good news uh, news division when that existed, uh, <laughs> is working for ClickPop or something. <laughs> no, our, our our Grossman's probably, I don't know, he's paywalled behind the Substack or something. <laughs> uh, no, one, no one's going to ever read our Grossman. <laughs> well, I'm reading our Grossman, but that's, I'm, the, I'm in, the small, in the small overlap of people who love literature and are obsessive about uh, particular journalists. <laughs> good, good. Uh, so there's this article that he writes in the line of the main drive, and uh, a particular quote is engraved still uh, over one of the kind of, you know, over what is this statue? I already forget the name in English. The Oh, like the Motherland Calls? Uh, yeah, the Motherland Calls statue over where one of the, the major hills that was sort of fought over, there's a a mausoleum and a memorial complex there then there's a line about um you know from from this from this article an iron wind lashed their faces but still they marched forward and once more a feeling of superstitious terror gripped their foe they're attacking us again can they be mortal and it's so such such a powerful line but uh according to this article i was reading the tour guides that you know are around this area say they don't know where the quote comes from and this is because of how grossman is sort of pushed pushed out the things that um sort of the state takes from him to memorialize the dead are you know this is now part of just the soviet mythos this doesn't belong to grossman and he's he's pushed out to the point that again he's literally uh, not even attributed to having this quote on this mausoleum today which is wild um, and of course, the author makes the point that, by and large, there were a, a lot of penal battalions that were fighting, and we sort of make it out to be that these were all, you know, diehard communist, uh, anti-fascists that were fighting. But you know, th- there were a good portion of, uh, you know, penal battalions and and, and other groups that weren't there necessarily, a hundred percent by choice. Let's put it that way. And so this is a sort of. This is an interesting point that it ties together a lot of this first part and a lot of like what we're going to come to read. I feel like this first episode needs a lot of exposition and a lot of setup to sort of get into the into the why uh, why this book and why Grossman is so impactful. And this is of course because of the fact that he reminds us how close really we were as humanity to 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 losing this war and then it continues to speak to us forward many many years into the future about how it touches you know on on a lot of themes but just kind of specifically on how ideology functions and it does it in a really really uh perceptive way that i think is not always shown in art literature, media, whatever you want to call it. I think that Grossman has a fantastic sense for that. And so all the things that we talk about in Life and Fate are sort of linked to the larger question of ideology, which is a huge question in the 20th century when you're having these sort of large battles, not just physical, but also ideological. And so everything that we read in everything we talk about, our Grossman quilt that we knit, uh, is going to be sort of tinged with that backdrop, if that makes sense. And I thought that this sort of writing out of Grossman from official history that continues to today was such a a wonderfully ironic, uh, well, not 
not wonderful for Grossman or for history, wonderful for the point that I'm making on the podcast. Um, ironic point mm. that sort of foregrounds that issue. Yeah. To take that right to today, I think that's a really important point in that when Grossman does, we've talked about this in our, our individual episodes, and we've had some podcast listeners point out this point this out to us as well. Grossman, his project in Stalingrad is a project of memorialization. He's bringing to life many of the nameless dozens of people that he met during his time as a reporter on the front lines. Life and Fate is also that, but it is that on a greater level where he's examining all these things we're talking about, these larger issues, uh, this place of the Soviet Union in history, the place of what is human and man, all these things. But he does that always, always by returning the human, what is man to man, what is human to humans in this story, at the moment of death, at the time in their, their times in the camps, whatever it is. And that's not always a good thing. It's also sometimes a bad thing. Not every human being is a good person. Uh, and that reflects people under stressful situations will act and, you know, return to their basis instincts, sometimes good, sometimes bad. And I think that's a really important point because looking back on this period, there's a tendency to make everything heroic, right? If you ever lived in Russia, you know that, like, Americans love World War II. Uh, they, it, it's like the last good war, right? <laughs> every, every war since then, every conflict is complex, with the exception of, like, maybe Desert Storm. Well, let's not get into that. Let's not litigate that. But <laughs> it, the, like, the, the, like, the cult of World War II in Russia, I would say, is even bigger because it's more present, right? Uh, to give you a sense of context, if you're not familiar, four out of every five Wehrmacht soldiers, four out of every five German soldiers who died during World War II died on the Eastern Front, died fighting, um, you know, the Soviet army or Slavic partisans, right? There, it's not just the USSR that's fighting here. You also have partisans. You also have uh, Yugos you know, the, the partisans who will later become Yugoslavia, a lot of groups here. But the, the fighting on that front is incomprehensible almost to the Western Front. The fighting on the Western Front is pretty tough. But again, four out of five. I like the, the rates, uh, the camps even not even, you know, one in 30 or something like that. That's not the exact number. But one in 30 maybe soldiers, POWs on the Western Front die in the camps. One in four on the Eastern Front die. The brutality, the level of death and destruction is immeasurable, Right. Two million people, over two million people die in the Battle of Stalingrad. You know how many people, uh, uh, casu Americans, casualties overall? 420,000. That's dead and wounded. Most of those are wounded, not dead. So in one single battle, now granted this is both sides, uh, and, but it doesn't include civilians, I don't believe that count, is losing four times in this one city alone. Like these are, are measurements that we can hardly imagine from this, from this front. And because of that, the effect it's had, the, the number of people who died is much greater in the Slavic world. A whole generation really is lost. And so today, if you've engaged with the culture around it, it is one of her, I, would, I use the word hero worship a little ironically here because you'll still see, right, certain cities because of their contribution to the war are designated hero cities. So you'll see their sign, you know, you know, Giroi, uh, you know, Grad of, you know, Petersburg, whatever, Yaroslavl many other cities and the movies and media which is this is also true in other countries but just speaking uh, to it uh gain this patriotic element which is just overwhelmingly like this is great like these are the guys who are sacrificing everything for us and grossman looks at that and because he's of that time period he knows that not everyone was that enthusiastic he knows not everyone was a good person but they were all there and he's memorializing them as they were as an attempt to return humanity and to reject this sort of ideological uh, approach that just uh must make all human life one thing or another and he's he kind of says it's very complex right i'm talking he writes about the the camps in which you know the nazi the nazi ghettos and he says yeah there are, there are a lot of collaborators in the ghettos that's an uncomfortable truth and that's the kind of thing that grossman wants to integrate into history that in in say the nazi ghettos in in occupied regions there were people who did their best for others and there were people who worked with the nazi party uh there were uh those among the the Jewish population who worked with the Nazis, there were those among the local Ukrainian, Belarusian populations who did that, good and bad at the same time. It's a complex story, and that's what Grossman's trying to tell us here. That's this project of memorialization, possibly, as you might read it, as a way to push back on that totalizing ideologicalization 
ideological approach to understanding even their own time, much less that time 30, 40, 50 years onward. Yeah, I think the the key point for him is that to more, memorialize something is not the same as to valorize it. And that's what we see more so today when you describe something like the cult of World War II in Russia. And that is what is dangerous to do. And he shows us why, because he shows us where that sort of behavior leads. It leads to what causes the thing that you are trying to memorialize. And so the 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 right lessons have not clearly been taken from Life and Fate. Maybe everyone needs to read Life and Fate. Uh, maybe that's the lesson. That could be the lesson. Maybe that's what needs to happen in totality. And everyone has to listen to our podcast. But if you've been really naughty, you have to listen to the daily ones. <laughs> <laughs> right. And it is still relevant. Um, we can't say how true this is today because this is a conversation we had with um, Robert Chandler. Robert Chandler is the translator of most of what you're reading of Grossman in English. For, sir, almost all of it. I can think of a few counterexamples, but very few. We spoke to Robert Chandler, God, two years back? A little under, a little under two years, maybe a year oh, and a half. Oh, who knows? Uh, Some time back. And Grossman, if he's to be believed, said the only thing he read during his time reporting during World War II was uh, Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace. And if you've been following on the dailies, you're probably sick of hearing about War and Peace. You've said, you might be saying, you already did six months on that book. Can we not get away? I'm sorry. You're in, you're in Russian literature territory. You cannot get away. Um, Chandler told us that he knows correspondents working in Ukraine, or at least did at that time, who were also returning to life and fate to try to understand that as well. So these same themes, we see them to today, same ideas, still relevant enough for people to, grap- to be trying to grapple with them in this, in this very book. So should we talk about the, the book more? <laughs> right, so now that we're 40 minutes in, why don't we talk about life and fate? Yeah, we could. We could. We probably should. Probably should. Um, yeah. We got a couple points here. Um, do you want to, is there any of them in particular you'd like to start with? Okay, I think this is a good time for a break. We'll be back in just a second. And we recorded this, I promise, in the middle. We didn't record this at the end and splice it in. Oh, yeah, we certainly never do that ever. Well, this episode is brought to you, our listeners. You can support independent podcasting by heading to our website, slaviclitpod.com. You'll get access to the notes we use to make this episode, including links to all the secondary sources mentioned. You can also check out our blog for all of our daily posts so far, and you can read those if you have not been going along with us so far. You can always catch up. Not too late. If you want to support the show but don't want to spend any of your hard-earned balloons, you can join our email list for free at slaviclitpod.com, or you can leave us a nice review wherever you get your podcasts. Questions? Comments? Want to appear on our Office Hours podcasts? Drop us a line. You can reach our voicemail at 209 800 3944. Or you can also email us a voice recording or text question at slaviclippod at gmail.com or bring your question onto the podcast and do our best to address it. All right, back to the gross cast. Uh, I'm going to start in the order that I have mine listed because that's easy for my lizard brain to follow. <laughs> These aren't necessarily in order of importance, but more so the order they show up, I think, in the book that I have them noted, which may in some cases indicate the order of importance. And the, the the first thread that I think is really important and that I probably didn't admittedly pay, I, not that I didn't pay attention to it, but I've noticed it more, I would say, on this read-through of Life and Fate, is as we're calling the emergence of Jewish identity. And what this means is sort of the... And, you know, I, I don't know for sure that this is the case. I'm not going to say this is the case for everyone, but this is how Grossman is depicting it in the book. So uh, Jewish people in the Soviet Union who did not necessarily think of themselves as Jewish. This was not a part of their identity that was strongly formed. This is not something that they would, um, you know, like uh, probably voluntarily or, you know, in a reactive way, think of themselves as being until all of a sudden it becomes extremely, extremely important uh, and extremely, extremely dangerous, really. And there are many characters who have uh, this moment where they say something along the lines of, you know, I didn't didn't think of myself as Jewish until now. And it is something that comes up again and again and again in the book. And Grossman foregrounds this in chapter three when there are three characters that are uh, captured by Germans on the outskirts of Stalingrad and 
there is a, a Russian soldier, uh, just a, a Russian woman, and a Jewish woman. Um, and the Russian soldier is he sent to the prisoner of war camp. The Russian woman, she's sent just, um, she's briefly interrogated and then she's given like some bread and let go. And, and then the Jewish woman, they, they take and we never see her again. And she, uh, Sophie Levinson, she has a larger role, more fleshed out character in Stalingrad. So you know who she is more if you have read that. But, uh, I, th I think that the fact that Grossman puts this in chapter three is really kind of controversial. This is clearly something that he's intending for you to pick up on early uh, and for you to know that this is something that is, that it, it is important. It wasn't the sort of, he, he wasn't on the side of the don't divide the dead because it just quite frankly wasn't true. And so you know, this is something that's that's important to him. Uh, and later we see the, the letter from his mother, which is a very haunting chapter. And then at the towards the end of the book, we have uh, another instance that we'll talk to when we get there of... Uh, it, I won't go into it much now because we're not there yet, but an equally, if not the most haunting scene from the book. This is my first thing that I wanted to, to bring up. This is... um pretty specific contribution of life and fate mm. i would say uh so, some people said that they they've noticed or have started to notice some similarities between grossman and hannah rent and the uh essay eichmann in jerusalem on the banality of evil and uh, we'll talk about that when we get there because yes if you've noticed it very good this is uh something that we are going to dissect more as we continue uh, it's a really, it's really in dialogue with this essay. Whether that's intentional or not, very well could be. I don't know if we've we've established that yet. Eichmann does appear in this book, and so that will be giving us some in, some fertile ground to compare uh, Arendt's portrayal of Eichmann. I'm not sure if if Grossman had read that. I'd have to. We, we don't know. I, I, I'm not sure yeah. if he. Yeah, but for what it's worth, that even if he hadn't read it, it doesn't matter because it shows you that there are lots of really smart people all across the world at this time in this intellectual network that are thinking about the same questions to such a degree that it could have seemed like they were all reading each other's work, which is actually even more interesting uh, than if they had been reading each other's work, I think. So to on why Grossman continues to be to be read and important to read is that he's engaging with this sort of intellectual network of of this time and he, he's really kind of square in the middle of a lot of these debates and he's not really still not really read as much appreciated as much as i think that he should be yeah absolutely especially in terms of world war ii literature you're not going to hear grossman talked about in the same breath that you hear other novels um even from that that same era you're not going to hear it talked about in the same way you hear catch 22 talked about or you know other such novels most of them mostly mostly novels of that era not talked about some novels looking back on that era but every high schooler should have to read life and fake going into <laughs> that would make them very that would make them love literature <laughs> yeah that would that would do a great <laughs> job of that um mm -hmm. so I, let's, let's transition here because i think you and i both have we both made notes and basically a very similar point you've titled it how fascism works i've titled it their wolfish era let's talk about ideology yeah, this, I, I mean, I titled it How Fascism Works because I was running out of top line <laughs> ideas for my That's quotes. Fair. It's number two not, on the list. What do you mean running out of ideas? Well, I did them in different orders. Oh, okay. I got it. I, I, my notes are a disaster. <laughs> right, that's fair. The amount, of, the amount of margin notes I have from doing the daily stuff is insane. Yeah. All right. Valid. So it, it's not really um, a complex idea on how fascism works, but... One of the things that Grossman is really able to dig into and, and excels at is showing why individuals do certain things. And we will compare this uh, very soon to how the sort of socialist bureaucracy crushes people. But when we when we look at when we look at fascism, there are some perceptive examples that Grossman gives throughout the book and there's this one quote that i that i love so much uh, on page 23 
where he says, What must have Skoy found most sinister of all was that National Socialism seemed so at home in the camp. Rather than peering haughtily at the common people through a monocle, it talked and joked in their own language. It was down-to-earth and plebeian, and it had an excellent knowledge of the mind, language, and soul of those it deprived of freedom. And that is just such a really haunting way to describe it, because I think that the reason that in the West we like World War II so much is because it's so easy to look back and say, okay, good and bad. And we don't really have to think about it that much. But I think Grossman is really warning us against um, looking at things in black and white. Because, yes, on one level, of course, it's really easy to look back and say, okay, good and bad. But, like you said earlier, there is there is both good and bad then within, as you continue to, to dig down and within everything, um, it's it's more difficult than just good and bad. And when we think that the things that are bad, um, we think that when we think they're going to look or sound a certain way in, in a way that clearly would be perceived as bad, well, how in the world would that be so persuasive to people if it was immediately identifiable as being bad or evil or not good for us? No, the things that are sort of the most sinister are the ones that are able to seep in in. Uh, our own language and and the ones that are sort of able to co-opt our our sort of feelings and like he says our souls that's a really powerful way to to say it um the the things that sort of they they joke with you they don't tell you or demand from you they they they're able to sort of um kind of pick you up and and i don't know put you sort of find a find a place for you where it you know it doesn't feel like you're doing something bad or something evil because most people don't set out to generally right do something that's evil that's not what most people wake up uh to in the morning unless you are perhaps my dog <laughs> uh, in which case possible you get what i'm saying though yeah and that that's what i think he's pointing at with how fascism works hence the title absolutely and moving on from there too the ways in which it becomes a self-driving machine. He also thinks in that chapter, it seems almost as if the guards could disappear tomorrow, and yet all those who have taken up those positions in support of this machine would keep on doing their job. The Nazis could disappear tomorrow, and this camp wouldn't change that much, as he, he as Mostovsky believes to be the case. And I think that is getting at something else here, which is that we've talked about the fact that there is going to be more comparison between... Um, you know, the Nazi forces, and the USSR. Now, historically in my life, I have resisted when people try to say, hey, isn't weren't Nazi Germany just like the USSR? Because I think the particulars of these two societies matters a lot. I think that they are very different and worth uh, really examining in their own context, not just saying, hey, isn't it bad when you have... Yeah, I have yeah. to respectfully bow out of those conversations <laughs> before I end up on the list. <laughs> yeah, me too. Uh, um because it's it's all beyond anything else like what to what end do you make that point of like who gets on that list of like why you know okay so great greatest you got the usual list of like oh here's the greatest guys but you know like why doesn't why don't people who have inflicted say why is not king leopold who inflicted eight to ten million deaths on the congolese people why is that why is he not in that conversation um racism is the story example but anyway the reason why i've always rejected that is because my to my to my mind i mean on one level it's because it's always just being used to score political points in an argument so it's useless anyway but mm -hmm. beyond that the question is to what end what do comparing these two things and saying that they are the same what higher understanding does that bring that to and i think when grossman is approaching this i'm very interested in this because grossman is not approaching this as a way to swing and make a political point and say haha i got you there aren't these two bad things just the same grossman is looking at these two uh, these two entities, and I he I don't he doesn't I think it's wrong to say that he uh, um, equates them to each other. What he does instead is examine the similar ways in which their ideological powers impact the people who live on them, and often deleteriously. I think there is a meaningful way in in which the Nazis there is a meaningful difference in the ways that the Nazis' deleterious effects are portrayed on the people in the camps and later on even on, you know, their own people, and the way in which the Soviet state is, right? I think those are two 
different things, and yet the way in which they force people, sometimes into being the worst version of themselves, the least human, the least kind, I think that's where he's starting to look and say, because he's not just saying, you know, uh, these two things bad. He's saying, looking around him and he's saying, I, we live in a horrible era. We live in a horrible wolfish time. How can we exist? How can we live? What is the point? There's a, there's a pretty haunting scene in chapter 30 or 29 where uh, the character Ludmila Shaposhnikova uh, is going to find her son who's been wounded. And she's getting on a bus in the city of Saratova and she sees a blind soldier and he, he grabs a woman's arm and says, you know, hey, could you please help me get on the bus? I can't, I can't see. And this woman turns around, curses at him for touching her and pushes him to the ground. And no one there who are all evacuees, who are all safe because of people like this soldier, none of them help him. And Ludmilla thinks, what could cause that cruelty? Is it, could it have been the Civil War? Could it have been, and here's a reference to the Holomador that you'll see throughout, could it have been that she, this woman, simply had too much instead in her life? Notably, she doesn't stop to help either, but... Yeah, I know. Uh, you... <laughs> I love that part, though. That was so funny. When, yeah, she's just sitting there reflecting about, oh, the world is so cool. Anyways, got a blast. <laughs> <laughs> um, right, but that's not just true there. Uh, there's another point. Uh, one of Ludmilla's youngest sister, Genia, is living in an apartment with an old governess who worked for the family. Now, this Genia, uh, Jenny, this woman that she's living with in a communal apartment, is an old German woman. And because of her Germanness, she is then suspect by everyone else, all these other ethnic Russians in the apartment. And their suspicion eventually lead them, someone, it's unclear who, to report her. And Jenny is then arrested and sent off to certain death in the far north, simply by the nature of her, her, her Germanness, too. Here, we have this fundamental meanness of this relatively harmless old woman. Um, and, you know, not even there, one of, the, one of the women in the apartment, accidentally or not, never made clear, then kills Jenny's cat by pouring boiling water on it. So you see this kind of fundamental spirit of meanness. And in other places, Grossman talks more about this wolfish era. Like, uh, and, he's, and I think what we're trying to do is, is tear apart all this fundamental unkindness that he sees around him. There's a character, Konikov, who tells Mostovskoy in the camps that he doesn't believe in anything, uh, any major political faction. What he believes is human kindness. And I'm not going to tell you that that's exactly what Grossman believed, but I think Grossman is trying to pull apart where did where, why do we see this fundamental lack of kindness now what creates this what, you know what what are the powers what are the systems what make us act this way even in the absence of the soviet state right because the soviet state is not just this big strange bureaucracy which is impenetrable it's the people that make it up it's people that make things those it's the people that make things or don't make things happen we've got this great back to back series of chapters where we've got the party secretary of a region who Everything happens for him simply by writing a letter because he is at the head of the leadership. Everyone knows him. Everyone knows they should follow his commands regardless of what the rules are. It happens. Two chapters later, we have Genya just trying to get a residency permit. And she is just jumping through hoops. She can't uh, apply for one until a request is submitted for one for through her job, but her job can't submit a request for one until something else has to happen. Uh, and they eventually submit an emergency one. Uh, the... People at the office accept it, and they say, well, you haven't given us proof of why you need this. The proof of why she needs this is because she works there and she has a job there, and they say, well, that's not enough. Um, and, you know, eventually she's on the verge of just leaving until um, an, an older, more respected figure who is not helping her so far decides, well, you know, let me help you out. And because it's because of his word that she is able to stay there, who, who finally gets her, her past, her relationship, because they know this person. And they, they make the system work for them. And this guy is very clearly, well, not very clearly, he then uh, somewhat menacingly comes on to Genya, very clearly intending a sexual return for that uh, favor. Um, but, you know, the larger point here is uh, the machinery is not just machinery. The machinery is the people who make it up. And Grossman does not let us forget that. Yeah, I, I know that we see a lot of the different levels of the Soviet state, but the perhaps the, the most cruelty um and it sounds maybe strange to say but some of the cruelest moments that are depicted are on an interpersonal level really cutting someone down when they're already down cutting someone even further down when you have a chance to help them uh in a society that's not supposed to be built like that um when grossman shows 
the fascists being mean and evil, it's kind of, it is shocking because of the sort of depravity and the kind of scale, but you sort of expect it because these are the bad guys. These are the ones who are evil. You would think that there would be some sympathy shown right to his, to his own country or that he'd be more sympathetic to that, but absolutely not. Uh, he shows that there is just a sort of, you can have a you know similar level of depravity on this interpersonal level, which is also really harrowing to read. Yeah, absolutely. And that even goes to the family level, who the kind of the core family that this narrative runs through is the Shaposhnikov family and their you know various in-laws and marriages and all that, and even to the lack of love and relationships to Victor Shroom and his his wife Ludmilla. We talked about Ludmilla. They clearly their their relationship is. Not going great. It's pretty heavily on the rocks. Victor Shroom, whose mother was killed by the Nazis, blames his wife, Ludmilla, uh, Olga, for... Not, <laughs> sorry, not Olga. That's Grossman's <laughs> actual wife. Uh, blames Ludmilla for uh, not bringing his mother you know, to stay with them, which, by the way, is pretty much one-to-one with Grossman's real-life example. Like, that's why I can why I, I mess those things up. A lot of what Victor Shroom does in this book is things that happen to Grossman or Grossman very clearly thought or, or did went through. Um, which is just wild to be writing this novel about like a character who's very clearly based on you and your wife on like very specific details than to go and write and some of the things that will happen here. Uh, (laughs) So like you shouldn't read Victor Strum as necessarily one to one. Like don't say, don't read it and think this is Grossman's voice, but it can be difficult considering how how much it's like, how close his life is to Grossman's actual life. Yeah, There's definitely some, what feel like stand in moments for sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, Anyway, that's, I know we're getting a little long. That's all I had to want to talk about. Is there anything you want to say to maybe wrap it up? No, just that I, I know this is a bit of an exposition episode, but really consider consider looking at some of the daily episodes, especially if maybe you don't want to do all of them. But if there are any particular chapters that you thought were really striking, we might have something more to give you in an individual episode. Absolutely exposition heavy episode but hey we've been releasing we've released 23 24 dailies at this point i think we earned a little exposition Mm. at this point you're telling me now that we're at this (laughs) right now that we're at this point matt i gotta ask what are we tackling next episode next episode we are we are letting you should you choose take advantage of our office hours uh, be sure to come with all of your comments, questions, and concerns. You really don't want to mess up the midterm. It's it's going to be really difficult to pull your final grade back up. So yeah, sure it is about sixty percent of your grade. So yeah, and I, I'm really bad at responding to emails. So <laughs> yeah, after six p.m., it's uh, no go. So yeah, tough. Some of this is script, and some of this is reality. Some of this is uh, something Matt's going to clip and send directly to his students. Yeah. Stop emailing me. (laughs) Stop emailing me at 11 p.m. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, uh, if you want to read Life at Fate and you, for some reason, don't have a copy at the moment and you want to read from the same copy as us, be sure to pick up a copy through our affiliate links on our website. We are reading the Robert Chandler translation which is the one that we wholeheartedly recommend and before we let you go we wanted to extend a sincere thank you to all of our followers current supporters erica michelle juliana diane oleg john timex melissa baron aldo ben gabe george claire amy ali soraya jackson molly emma mike marianne mickey Eric, Mike, Peter, Claire, Ben, Jeff, Inez, Mai, Robert, Joseph, Daniel, Lou, Nina, Gary, Janice, Mary, Anne, Isaac, Emily, Amanda, Caitlin, Yitza, Irene, and Pacrob. Wow, okay, all in one breath. Been training for that one. I also wanted to thank two sets of authors who have been hugely helpful for us in putting this series together, especially in doing the background reading. These are not the only two books we've been pulling from, but these are where we've been pulling quite a bit of information from. So first of all, I want to say, if you have the time, you should definitely read Alexander Popov's book, Vasily Grossman and the Soviet Century. That one is a great book. 
used it heavily for our Stalingrad series. We're also pulling heavily from it for this series. Uh, also, The Life and Fate of Vasily Grossman by John and Carol Garrard. Also an excellent read, both definitely worthwhile pieces uh, to get into, among other books about Grossman as well. The music used in this episode was Staraya Kino by Perumotka. You can find more of their stuff on Bandcamp or Spotify. The links and spelling are in the show notes. You'll hear from us again soon.